Welcome to leadership is a personal choice. We named it that way because it is. Leadership is about taking ownership, about being responsible for yourself to ensure that whatever happens to you or whatever happens around you is positive and good for everybody. I hope you enjoy these podcasts and do let us know, rate them, send us your suggestions and send us your comments. Happy listening. Mentoring is a contact sport. It's the in thing today. I mean, those who uh, believe they can mentor others or who like to mentor others, and there seems to be a profusion of that. And they charge a fee for that. So this is the new business. The interesting thing is the name for the one who wants to be mentored. I always found it very funny. It's mentee. Reminds me of the manatee, which is uh, an aquatic animal. I tell anyone, anyone who wants to be mentored by me, if you are demented enough to want me as your mentor, you will thenceforth be known as mental. I say this only partly in jest and partly because most of the people that I've met in this context who want to be mentored live under all sorts of romantic notions about what mentoring is and what the ideal mentor should be like. Then when they encounter someone like me who may not fit their imaginary model, they are dissatisfied and they try to change me to fit their fantasy. Now, Needless to say that never happens and we part company. The best thing in life is to start your career under a hard taskmaster. Anyone who can teach you what to do, anybody can teach you what to do. But hard taskmasters teach you standards. That is the biggest favor that anyone can do for you. Mentoring is perhaps the single most powerful evidence of love that one can wish for. The mentor is sharing his hard-earned life experience to teach you lessons that will help you all your life. And you get to learn those lessons relatively free of cost. I say relatively because there's always a token cost to pay. But that goes with the territory and adds value because you can appreciate that you got something worthwhile. I'm not talking about fees to the mentor. I'm talking about the cost of the pain of learning. That is the cost, the real cost. Let me give you an example. It was 1972 and I was 17 years old. As usual, I was in Setpalli with Uncle Rama on his farmhouse on the bank of the Kadam River. Farmhouse is a fancy word to describe one of the simplest homes that I have ever seen or lived in, in which lived a man who could afford something a thousand times better but didn't because he didn't care about material things and loved to live a simple life. The house was rectangular in shape with a central room which was also a passage to go from the veranda in front to the kitchen at the back. This central room had a square table with four chairs around it. It was supposed to be the dining room but we never ate in it. The table was used as a surface to put anything we wanted handy. To one side in this room was a Westinghouse kerosene refrigerator in which we sometimes made ice cream. On, the, on, the, on either side of the central room were two equally sized rooms with windows in the outer walls. One looking out to the veranda in front and the other to the side of the house. In the front of this house was a wide veranda that ran the whole length of the house. There was a two feet wide and three feet high parapet wall that enclosed the veranda. This acted as additional seating and a place to rest your feet and lean back in your chair balancing on its hind legs. 
on one side of the dining room door uh, open opening into the veranda was a long table with a bench on one side and the parapet wall as the seating on the other there were some rope cots on the other side of the veranda all our meals and most of our conversation was around this table on the veranda if you walked through the front door across the dining room you would emerge on the back veranda on one side of which was the kitchen on the and on the other was the bathroom i am deliberately writing the bathroom with a hyphen deliberately as two words to emphasize that it was a room in which you bathed only there was no toilet in it you bathed in it if you didn't want to bathe at the well in the fields which was a good way away from the house that was more fun especially in summer as you could look across the river to the jungle on the other side or at the low hills of the sahyadri in the distance the well had a low parapet wall all around and a paved apron i would stand on that apron in my lungi and shivaya or whoever happened to be handy would draw water out of the well in a bucket and pour it over my head i would then soap myself thoroughly and my friend would pour another bucket or two of water and my bath was done these people who i'm calling my friends and they were my friends were uncle rama's servants but for me they were my friends the indoor bathroom was for the winter when it tended to get too cold to bathe outdoors in winter kishta would heat water and that was the cook and put half a bucket each of cold and hot water uh in the bathroom and i would mix the two to my liking and bathe indoors now what about the toilet you ask well the toilet was anywhere you chose so you would take a a lota a mug a container of water in the morning and you would walk away from the house and find yourself a quiet place to sit where you could contemplate life and look at the view and uh, in that place you dug a little hole and on either side of the hole you placed a brick or a or a rock and then you would squat on that hole and you would make your deposit and when you were done and washed and clean you would then fill up everything so completely organic clean no smell uh, and uh, instant nitrogen for the plants growing around there so that was the bathroom the story i want to tell you is that it was summer and i had been out the whole day my routine was usually that i would leave the house at first light having eaten a hearty breakfast of chapatis eggs and a large mug of tea laced with plenty of sugar in those days i used to take sugar in my tea and go across the kadam river into the forest i would usually walk but on occasion shivaya would take me in his bullock cart the bullock cart is the most versatile vehicle known to man and can do everything except climb trees of course it doesn't have springs or shock absorbers and that is hard on your back and bones but not when you are 17 On that day Shiva and I set off in the morning and we took a long route that was a huge circle which would bring us back to the river in the evening Summer days are long and so we had plenty of time I was carrying a 7.62 Mauser bolt action carbine rifle with a 5 shot magazine and Shiva was carrying a, a .22 Bruno rifle He was my gun bearer my guide and pal all in one I usually took two weapons alternating between the 7.62 which we called 8mm for short 
and a 12-gauge shotgun depending on what I planned to look for that day. Hunting was never my priority. I never liked to kill anything and I've not hunted now for over 40 years. My abiding love was and is to simply be in the forest and watch wildlife, birds and animals in action in their natural habitat. As it was, we were running out of meat and Uncle Rama told me to get a young cheetal or a blue bull, a nilgai, if I could, so I took the carbine. The tutu bruno was for any small game like hare or duck or jungle fowl, which if shot with the carbine would simply disintegrate and be worthless for the table. I carried the carbine as, on that day I was carrying the carbine as our first priority was the bigger animal, which if we shot anything else would be disturbed with the sound and run away. The tutu was for the way back, or at least for after I had shot the main quarry for the day. It was a very hot day in the summer. Summer in the Sahadri can be extremely hot with temperatures in excess of 45 degrees Celsius. The deciduous forest in the foothills leading to the Kadam River is mostly teak with a sprinkling of other species. In some places, there were large clumps of bamboo. All these shed their leaves in summer and so the forest floor is carpeted with dry leaves. That makes moving noiselessly impossible. As you walk, the leaves crumble loudly and make a racket loud enough to wake the dead. I walked ahead of Shivaya, who sometimes guided me from behind. Either he would speak in a very low voice, just a word or two, to ask me to, be, to either be careful or to turn one way or the other. Or he would click his tongue, he would go or or that's it. If there was some animal or bird that he had seen, but which I had missed. That didn't happen very often, but as I was very alert and trained in woodcraft by the greatest experts that I've ever known, Nawab Nazir Arjan and Uncle Rama, Venkat Rama Reddy. From them I learned above all respect for the forest and those who live in it. Respect is the most important thing to learn because it enables you to appreciate your, your surroundings. That means that you are not careless, but take care to ensure that you don't cause any damage to anything animate or inanimate. When you act like that, you automatically keep yourself safe. The second thing I learned was about the animals and the plants of the place. I learned the names of plants and trees, what they were used for, where they grow, the season in which they change and what that indicates for us. I learned about their flowers and fruit and what they can be used for. For example, I learned about the mahua flower, which is used to distill alcohol and which is fleshy and sweet. And so when the mahua is flowering, every it attracts every bird and monkey in the vicinity. As they feed on the flowers, they drop as much or more than they eat. That attracts deer and bears and gaur and where they exist, elephants. In the Satpura um, or the Sahyadri, uh, there are no elephants, but everything else is there. There are banyan trees and other fixed species which are a magnet for birds of all feather. There is the beady leaf tree which uh, is used to make uh, country cigarettes. There is the katha tree. Katha is made from its bark and that's the brown stuff in the pan that you eat, beetle leaf. Uh, there's strangler fig, there's lantana with its thick intertwined branches with small vicious thorns that are impenetrable. But, between, but beneath them they form the ideal habitat for small animals and birds, mainly grey jungle fowl and wild boar. It is a funny sight to see grey jungle fowl jumping up to reach the lantana berries. When there are a few of them doing that, it's almost like a ballet with one going up and another down. 
Under the lantana is a nice dry secure world for jungle fowl to live and nest in. Wild boars are the only danger there as they also lie up during the day under the lantana bushes. Leopards and jackals go in after them sometimes but for the most part the lantana is a good guard of those who seek its shelter. Bamboo is also one of the uh things that is there in one of the plants in this uh, forest in the sahaya in the sahyadris um and bamboo attracts browsers like sambar uh, nilgai cheetal uh, and bison which is uh, which is really gaur but we call them bison they love the young shoots of bamboo that day i was walking ahead with the 8mm carbine and shivaya was behind me with the 22 bruno We were going through some thick bush and I could see the open light of a clearing ahead. Forest clearings are usually productive as animals and birds feed in them. So I crept up very slowly towards it. As I came near I could see that the land sloped away from me down into a dry nala which is a dry stream bed with a large tree felled in a storm resting on the side of its crown. And on the top end of it was perched a large male peacock. It was not my plan to shoot anything before I could bag a cheetah or nilgai uh but the peacock was too much of a temptation however i was carrying the wrong weapon for it so i signaled to shivaya to come forward and give me the tutu unfortunately he couldn't see the peacock and i couldn't warn him to stay silent so as i took the tutu rifle from him he stepped on a dry twig which snapped like a pistol shot The peacock took off in a loud beating of wings and sailed off down the slope long gone before I could bring the rifle up to take him down A flying peacock is a beautiful sight and so I contented myself with enjoying that And then to my frustration a sound of a wild boar broke cover from one end of the clearing and trotted off across it into the bush on the other side I could only watch them go as I once again had the wrong weapon such is life sometimes teaches you the importance of preparation even where i had a legitimate excuse for not being prepared it was a lesson to learn that excuses don't change reality a loss doesn't turn to gain because you have a legitimate excuse by then it was almost midday and extremely hot it was also a time when nothing moved as all animals would be lying up in shade wherever they could find it shiva and i also decided to rest for a couple of hours We found a clump of bamboo halfway up the slope from a tributary of the Kadam River and sat in the patchy shade it provided. I had discovered that if you consciously decide to be one with your surroundings, you stop feeling hot. Don't ask me about the physics of it. Maybe it's just in the mind, but who cares as long as it happens, right? When you simply sit and breathe deeply and relax, you go into a sort of meditative somnolent trance which is very tranquil and peaceful. When you emerge from it, you are rejuvenated. As I sat there, I didn't lie down as bamboo clumps are famous for snakes and ants. I did what I always do in such situations. Listen to all the sounds around around me and try to identify them. There are two benefits of this. For one, it's very interesting and adds to your knowledge about the forest and its denizens. And secondly, it gives you information about who is about. That can be very important, especially if it's something you are looking for or something you want to avoid. That day the loudest sound I could hear coming at me from all around nature's surround sound experience if you will was the cicadas they make a sound which is so loud that it can deafen you the apparatus they use is an organ which is called timbles 
Trimbles are a pair of rib membranes at the base of the abdomen. The cicada sings by contracting the internal timbal muscles. This causes the membranes to buckle inwards, producing a distinct sound, like a click. When these muscles relax, there's another click. The timbals pop back to their original position. Now they do that so fast that it's like a trrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr
that often given the massive flush of adrenaline in the animal it could run for several hundred meters before it falls due to blood loss there have been cases of large animals running for a couple of miles and some that perhaps live for more than two days before they eventually succumb to the wound a very painful way to die placing the shot is therefore very critical to successful hunting in my surprise and hurry that was the mistake i made by then it was completely dark and there was no chance of our finding the stag shivaya and i wound our way home sad that we were returning empty handed uncle rama would understand what had happened i was sure i was not thrilled about returning with a story instead of a quarry but that was how life was sometimes so well that's what i thought i had no idea of the turn events would take to make that night one of the most memorable of my life we crossed the karam river which was almost totally dry near the house with a small trickle against the far bank which we could easily jump across without even wetting our feet a far cry from the raging torrent filling the entire bed from bank to bank that it would become in the monsoon as i climbed up the slope leading to the house uncle rama was on the veranda and he called out in greeting to me ya baba come welcome back kya mare what did i what did you shoot i heard the shot i shot a cheetah stag shavash kai he says congratulations where is it i lost it i said and told him the whole story he listened in silence and then he said you are telling me that you wounded an animal and left it to die and you came home it got dark uncle rama i couldn't see anything what could i do i am sorry that doesn't work you never leave a wounded animal you shoot straight and kill the animal outright or you follow up and finish it off you never ever leave an animal to die in pain because you couldn't shoot straight that's what he said well i thought that was a bit hard but he was the boss so i didn't say anything then he says right so now wash up have your dinner and then go and get that chital back i was not sure that i had heard him right it was almost 9 pm by the time i had had my dinner it would be 10 pm He was telling me to go out into a forest with dangerous wild animals in the middle of the night to f- bring back an animal that I had wounded. Now, was I going to obey? I don't think the alternative even occurred to me. He was my mentor. I loved him very much and he loved me like his son. So if he told me to do something I did it, no question about it. I washed up, Krista put the food on the table. Shivaya went to the back of the house to eat in the kitchen. When we had both eaten, I picked up the 8mm carbine. Uncle Rama said to me, Don't take that. Take the 12-bore shotgun and take these. He gave me four buckshot cartridges. In the night, you will only get to shoot at, co- at close range. No time to fool around with a rifle. Use this. At close range, this will stop an elephant. There was so much love. Tough love, all right, but love in this action of making me go into the dangerous environment and, but ensuring... that i had everything i needed to be safe and survive the fact that he w- that he even ordered me to go was a credit to me that he trusted in my ability to take care of myself and treated me like a responsible adult and not just a responsible teenager talk about mentoring here is mentoring for you teach equip and trust to trust means to give responsibility which was more dangerous 
Me taking care of myself or Uncle Rama having to explain to my parents that he had sent me out in the forest in the night and that is why I had been eaten, I had been eaten by a tiger or bitten by a cobra. He knew that, yet he took a risk because he trusted me and needed to teach me a lesson that a gun was not a toy. Hunting was not about having fun killing animals. It was about behaving responsibly, taking ownership for your actions and accepting accountability, which means that if you make a, pisne- if you make a mistake, you pay for it. Shivaya and I left. There was a full moon, so the forest was a landscape of light and shadows. As we crossed the Kadam riverbed, I could hear the call of the Indian nightjar. It's a fantastic bird and uh, the call sounds almost mechanical, as if it's made by a machine. It's a churr, tuk tuk tuk, churring, ending in clicks. Nightjars are nocturnal birds that get active when night falls and feed on beetles and other insects. They sit motionless on the ground on pathways or clearings and they flap in complete silence to catch the unwary insect which flies past. In the day, the roost in trees or, or rocky outcrops, trusting to their beautiful camouflage to keep them safe. We came out of the riverbed and climbed the far bank and took the path leading to Shivaya's village. Shivaya was a realist. Or was he acting on Uncle Rama's secret orders? Believe me, to this day, I, don't, I have no idea. I don't know. He said to me, Dora, let us sleep in my village and go out with the dogs in the morning before the sun rises. We will get the stag there. Trying to find him in the night without dogs to follow the scent is impossible. Getting the dogs to go out into the forest in the night is impossible. So what do you say? I learned early in life never to argue with elders who have more experience. So I agreed. We walked the half mile to his village. His village was a haphazard collection of mud huts with untidy grass thatch roofs. The hut had one door and no windows. and The women usually cooked inside the hut. The fuel was dried cow dung cakes. The Gorns, Shivaya's tribe, had a large herd of scrub cattle, whose main produce, believe it or not, was dung, not milk. The cattle would be taken out to graze in the forest daily by little boys who would walk behind them and collect the dung they dropped. This would be mixed with grass, dry leaves and other debris and shaped into flat round cakes, which were sun-dried on any handy surface in the village. When dry, they would be stacked indoors to keep them out of the rain and used as fuel. If dried properly, they made an, an almost smokeless fire. But that is only if they were totally dry. Otherwise, the hut was full of smoke. In the night, the hut was not only home to the family, but two dogs, one goat and a young calf that was too young to be left outside with the other cattle. It was into this hut that Shivaya very kindly invited me to sleep. I politely declined and asked him to put the rope cot that he offered me outside the hut and said that I prefer to sleep in the open. He was not he was not happy with that as the forest was home to tigers, leopards and bears, but I was happier taking my chances with them than with sleeping inside the hut with its smoke and multiple smells. The smoke inside the hut was protection against mosquitoes also, but my view was ditto about that as about tigers, leopards and bears. I lay on the rope net, covered myself with the goat hair blanket that Shivaya used for himself, kept my shotgun handy and lay on my back looking at the sky. By this time the moon had set and the stars were out in their splendor. 
You must lie on your back in a forest without any ambient light and look up at the sky to understand the true magnificence of the night sky. As I lay there, I thought to myself that I was probably seeing things that didn't exist. I mean that the star that I may be looking at could have died millions of years ago, but I was seeing it because its light reached me only now. Quite a sobering thought, if you ask me. One of my greatest delights when spending a night in the jungle is to listen to the sounds as the time changes from morning to night and back from night to morning. During the day, especially during the hot months, the jungle is mostly a silent place, except for the cicadas and the brain fever bird. Between the two of them, it is actually possible to go crazy. But as the sun goes down and the day cools, the jungle comes alive and starts preparing for the night. Peacocks announce that it is time to start heading for the roosty places. The very loud mewing scream of the peacock has to be the most irritating sound in the world, but in the jungle it seems completely in sync and not irritating at all. Jungle cocks, grey jungle fowl in the Sahyadris and South India and red jungle fowl in the north then add their voices with their characteristic calls that end in a question. When one calls, another answers him. The hens are silent and leave it to the men to announce to the world that the day is coming to an end. Teeter, partridge, then start to call and answer one another as they head towards their roosting places. Duck and in season geese flights start landing on the lake as they seek safety in the water. They stay on the water all night where nothing from the land can get at them. Geese are great talkers and you hear them long before you see them as they come in their classic arrowhead formations and land on the lake, feet first, setting up little ski tracks on the surface before they settle their keels into the water. As the darkness sets in, the first animal calls come in. The cheetal stag, the cheetal, the cheetal stag barks to let the world know that he's seen a leopard or a tiger. However, some young cheetal are easily spooked and also tend to give the alarm call if they see a dog or a man. Cheetal usually follow langur who have a symbiotic relationship with each other. Langur feed on top of the trees and cheetal eat what they drop from the top of leaves and fruit. I'm not sure if there are any formal studies to support my observation of the relationship between cheetal and langur, but I have almost always seen them together, especially in the semi-deciduous forest of the Sayadris. More importantly, langur always have a lookout whose only job is to sit on the topmost branches and watch for predators and give the alarm if he sees one. They take turns in doing this so that everyone in the troop gets to feed. Langur's calls, gunk, gunk, are more reliable and cheetal take them very seriously as the langur lends perspective to the cheetal's pedestrian life. The most reliable of all alarm calls, though, is the deep belling of the sambar. When the sambar tells you that he has seen a tiger, you can take his word for it. What's more, the sambar will keep belling, dhank, 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 as long as the tiger is in view. If you have some experience, you can locate the tiger and tell which direction he is moving in simply by listening to the sambar calling. As the night passed, I dozed, being far more interested in listening to the sounds of the jungle than in sleeping. Samar belled on the hill, a sure sign that a tiger was about, but that was a long way off from where I was, so nothing for me to be concerned about. In the forest, sound carries a long way, especially if it is coming from a higher elevation. 
The night fell silent, I dozed, and then it was daybreak. Mornings are equally magical in the jungle. The first calls are usually the grey jungle fowl roosters, checking to see if it is really dawn. They do their more serious calling later when they come down from the trees, and they find a tree stump or rock and stand on it and call out a challenge to any other roosters in the vicinity. But the first calls are while it is still dark. The langur wakes up and adds a hoot or two. The next are the peacocks greeting the strengthening lights. The night jars make the last of their chukor calls as they set, settle in for the night. You may hear an owl or two. By now, the light is better and the partridge start calling and the peacock and jungle fowl add their calls to them. Cheetah and Sambar are generally silent now as most predators have settled in for their rest. If the occasional tiger is still getting to his lay-by, you may hear the Sambar who sees him announcing his progress. Morning comes quickly in these parts and by about 5.30 a.m. it is clear light. The duck and geese flights start as soon as the light starts to get stronger, headed for the fields of cultivated land where they feed all day with one goose always as a lookout. They take turns so that everyone in the flock gets to eat, but when on sentry duty, they don't slack in the slightest. A threat to life is a great motivator. Shivaya came out of his hut by the time I had completed my ablutions with sweet milky tea, which we both drank in silent companionship. When we had finished and the light was stronger, he whistled to his dogs and we set off to find a cheetal. These are the famous Indian pie dogs, small curs with a very highly developed sense of smell and a lot of wisdom living in the jungle where they are the favorite food of leopards. So only the clever ones live. We took the dogs to where I had first shot at the cheetah and they attracted into a ravine where he had fallen and died the previous night. Not too far from where we had been looking for him but not having the dog's sense of smell, we had no chance of finding him in the, ba- in the dark. As I thought, my shot went straight through his his heart and out to the back. Straight through his lungs and out to the back. As it didn't break any major bone, the animal ran away and there was not much of a blood trail. It died eventually, but after running almost 200 yards and falling into the small ravine. Such were my lessons in responsibility learned. Lessons about being responsible for my actions, for the consequences of my actions, and for being ready to pay the price thereof. Much that I am grateful to Uncle Rama for. What remains most vivid in my memory is the way in which he taught me, even the painful lessons. Firm, but full of love, and with a lot of respect.